right, we're going to continue on with our sermon series. I'm going to tell you a couple things as disclaimers. The first one is that uh, this is the last you have to hear of me for like a couple weeks. Um, Leslie, uh, Grant, I think Chelsea and Melissa are all preaching in the next month, and so that's pretty exciting. Uh, and you get to hear a different perspective and uh, some different thoughts from someone other than just me. Second thing is I've realized that in this sermon series it is kind of technical and pretty academic. And that's okay. Uh, it really is. Because a couple of sermon series that we've done before this really haven't been as much. And I kind of resisted it at first thinking and apologizing for teaching so much. But the more I think about it, the more I think we actually need to be taught uh, as a church, as young people. Uh, I know that I can get up here and do the whole entertainment, you know, sermon, which I did at the beginning, and it's funny, and I can be weird and quirky, and it's all really great and showy, and that's helpful to a degree, and I think that's interesting, uh, but this sermon series really lends itself towards being a much more academic study of kind of the basics of Christianity, and certainly at the end, we're trying to bring that back into, well, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis for me, but I really uh, hope that and encourage that you will be willing to stretch your mind a little bit, even if it feels pretty uncomfortable to be taught, particularly in addition to learning all week from your various teachers and professors, uh, that you would really go and think through this stuff and study it. And you know, I, I'll say it again because I've said it a million times, but I pretty much have to repeat it like a hundred <laughs> times for it to get done, is we have a form on our uh, Facebook page, which we probably need to like, keep refreshing for you to be active participant in this sermon series. We always do that. As a church, we want as many people to be involved in our services as possible. So please get on there and think through some of the questions that our staff has asked you so that we can read them and use them in our worship services and, uh, and reflect on them. Okay? I know there are more thoughtful kinds of questions that require a little bit more like sit down and actually you know, calm down and reflect and meditate, but that's, I think, precisely what we need uh, sometimes, and particularly in our day and age, which we're really, really busy. So this sermon is going to be no different in terms of its teaching kind of uh, bent and its academic nature, so please hang in there and, uh, you know... The best thing that you can do is probably take notes. I'll put the PowerPoint on the Facebook page. Yes, I've done a PowerPoint, which is like the second one I've ever done here, I think, as a church. Uh, that's how you know, much teaching is going to be involved this morning. And, uh, and that you'll go back and kind of think through some of this and pick it apart and try to understand it. Um, but this is itself an act of worship, that we are together uh, in a place where we can really use our minds and not just our short attention spans to, to give to God in hopes that the Spirit will really work in it to really stretch it and change it uh, and help us grasp some concepts that only the Spirit can really help us grasp. And so, uh, anyway, that's my long, very long disclaimer about it being a boring sermon with lots of teaching involved, rather than me jumping around up here and telling stories about birds and things like that. <laughs> not one example I have ever used in all of my career of preaching has impacted you more than my bird story, okay? I have had more people come up to me and talk to me about birds uh, and just out of nowhere uh, than any other example I've ever used. So that's really unfortunate, but oh well, because that wasn't even really a good point. I probably can't even remember. You guys probably can't remember what the point was, could you? No, you couldn't. You just remember there was a bird story. <laughs> Shame on you. All right, um, so here we go. Uh, I've got my PowerPoint somewhere up there, hopefully. Talking about spiritual disciplines and sacraments today. Now, some of you uh, probably don't even know what that means. And I didn't, I wouldn't say until probably a few years ago when I began actually kind of studying back through church history and church tradition. So I'm going to give you like a very, very brief, uh, what I'll call kind of uh, an overview or almost like a history 
of uh, you know, this idea of spiritual disciplines and sacraments, and then I want to pull it back into the world. Uh, so what does this mean to us? What does the scripture say about it? How did Jesus and Paul interact with these things? And uh, where do we go from here? Okay, the first one is the seven sort of traditional Catholic sacraments and, and also Eastern Orthodox sacraments are those up there. Some of them have really weird words like unction, uh, but I just tried to kind of explain them without using their weird words. So we've got communion, baptism, which by the way are two of the ones that generally Protestants accepted. Okay, after the Reformation, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, Protestants sort of like said, okay, yeah, we, we're cool with those two. Not so much as sacramental in the way that Catholics talk about them as sacraments, but they were generally seen as more important than the other ones on this list, okay? You got penance, which is this whole idea of asking for forgiveness and then being able to forgive others, the idea of confession, if you will, which grew out of that. Marriage, uh, anointing sick, confirmation, and uh, holy orders, which is the idea of the priesthood. And so these were seen as sort of seven particularly sacred aspects of Christianity. And how these developed and why, uh, we're not going to go into and talk about You've got to go read that on your own. The idea, though, is simply that these were really kind of like specific things that helped connect us to the holy, to God. That, got, that kind of moved us beyond our trivial and mundane lives and actually connected us to something really beyond ourselves. Supernatural, spiritual, whatever you want to kind of say, these were like surefire ways to get God involved in your life by doing these things. Okay? Uh, so, okay, we got those seven sacraments. And then spiritual disciplines. We've been talking about this a little bit in our church ever since the summer. Some of us read a couple books on this. I uh, talked about this at the leadership summit and uh, or conference, and some people were like, what did you talk about during your talk? I was really tired, and you went through it so quickly. Well, guess what? I'm going to go through it so quickly again. Uh, so if you're interested in this, definitely write some of this down. You know, If you want to uh, look at some references for this, particularly the sheet that we passed out at the leadership conference is a great starting place to start looking into this idea of spiritual disciplines, um, and uh, there's articles on there for those of you who don't want to be committed to a book, which I understand, um, that will really kind of help you think through these things. But what we mean by spiritual disciplines, and, and these disciplines more or less grew out of the sacraments. These were things that uh, we would do sort of not in a kind of communal sense, but in an individual sense throughout our week that would help us grow in our spirituality. And the early church fathers were all into the discipline. In fact, they were a little bit too crazy when it came to disciplines, okay? They did some really weird and I would say harmful things, mostly because they were in a culture where that was sort of seen as acceptable and wise. In the Greek culture, uh, particularly with some of the philosophers who believed a lot that the body was bad and that the soul and spirit were good, to kind of be harsh to your body was a really kind of spiritual thing. We see that even some uh, in Hinduism and Buddhism today in addition to Christianity. The point is though that it, it, they were trying to look for ways that helped them grow in really proactive uh, ways. Things that they could do, things that they could accomplish, things that they could see, okay, here's my next week, here's something that I really want to grow in my discipline. And particularly things that they were bad at. Because after all, if God is working in us through the Holy Spirit to accomplish His purposes, then that means no area uh, is off limits. And in fact, particularly those areas that we're weakest in, as Paul would say, God wants to work in to show that He's the one doing the work. That it's not us after all. For him to be glorified. It's the whole idea of whittling down Gideon's army to a few like water lapping people, which 
never quite understood what the significance of that was, uh, to show that God was going to win the battle, not a group of ragtag warriors, you know? This is the same idea. And so these men and women of faith would, would really choose to set out on these almost impossible tasks. I'm talking about like guys standing one-legged on a post for as many days as they could, okay? I think that's impossible. So I'm guessing they had to use two legs because I just can't imagine some of the stories of these people standing on a post for like 40 days. There's just no way you could use one leg, am I right? Had to have been two legs. Doesn't make it any less significant, okay? But... Let's not exaggerate what actually went on. I'm pretty sure there was two legs. There are a lot of stories, okay? Crazy stories of the early church fathers doing the weirdest, silliest things. Probably the only modern day reflection of this is like, for those of you who watched the horrible movie Da Vinci Code, looked way better, and that weird albino guy who like cut himself and like did weird things to himself, right? Like that's the only thing I think I think in modern day verbiage that we would have a sense of like how extreme some of these disciplines were. These people were hurting and harming their bodies just to sort of show that they were spiritually disciplined and that they could overcome the body. So uh, this has kind of come back in fashion, actually, in the last probably 20 or 30 years. And we won't go into the history of why spiritual disciplines have become fashionable again. uh, But the, the quick and dirty of it is that I think a lot of us are searching for meaning, particularly millennials who have seemed to lost a lot of the meaning that tradition held in the past. And so they're looking for anything and in, in, in everything that's, that will somehow contribute to a meaningful experience of Christianity. And even if that means going way into the past to find old ways of doing things, a lot of young people are really okay with that. And that's why some of these things, I think, are coming back in fashion. So anyway, um, the way that I wanted to find spiritual disciplines, because I certainly believe spiritual disciplines are more than just a cultural fad or even a religious fad. There's something that's core to the idea of Jesus working in us. Um, and in fact, in some ways, they're the sort of sign or evidence that God really is at work. Uh, we tend to talk about the evidence as being beliefs and as mental, but um, some of that has more to do with our you know, enlightenment obsession than it does with uh, you know, a real scriptural understanding of the world. So these are the things often that will really sort of evidence spirituality or evidence the Holy Spirit's work uh, in our lives or these things that the Holy Spirit is disciplining us in. So number one is it engages the body, soul, and mind. These aren't just things we think, and they're not just things we do. Uh, They engage all aspects of who we are, these spiritual disciplines, which seems like, what does that even mean? So I'm just going to say it and then not explain it, like I do with a lot of things. Um, You think it's because I don't want to explain it, but it's because I don't know it either. I'm just saying it. And so, uh, you know, okay, I thought that would get more laughs, but no. (laughs) Difficult at first, and I think this one connects with us a lot, but is a great source of joy as time goes on. It's like learning anything at the beginning. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like, oh, I've done a bad job. I'm not good at this. This is too hard for me. This is whatever insecurities you have about this pursuit that you're heading down. Well, spiritual disciplines are exactly the same way, particularly if you choose one that you're particularly weak in. It's like, oh my gosh, this is impossible. It's impossible. There's no way I could think about reflecting and meditating on Scripture for 45 minutes a day. I mean, that just sounds unrealistic. Two minutes? Yeah, that's about all I got. Praying for longer than 10 minutes? No possible way. It's impossible. Humans can't do it. Um, You might be telling yourself that, right? But uh, these are things that are incredibly difficult at the beginning. They require a lot of work. And precisely because they require a lot of work, they're a great fertile field for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds. Because then we know God really is working in us. And it's not just us pulling up our bootstraps and trying as hard as we can. Certainly our effort plays a big role in this. But... 
the, the real glory goes to God in being able to really work these things out in us as we continue to move forward and make them a priority in our lives. Uh, and then the third one is it prepares us for more virtuous decisions, uh, but they're not necessarily good. I'm sorry I didn't like write these in complete sentences. I was doing this this morning. I was hyped up on coffee. It was like dark. Um, this cat was passing by, taunting me uh, outside the window at Loco Cafe. Like, I, I, every time I... Okay, this is... I'm sorry, this is a tangent. It's a serious academic... Okay. Uh, prepare this more for virtuous decisions, but not necessarily good in and of itself. I talked about this at our leadership conference. The idea of solitude, which some of us have a really tough time with. We really do. I did early on. Um, in my faith, just being alone meant being anxious to me. I couldn't deal with my own thoughts. And so I wanted to be around people. And constantly be around people. And when I got off on my own, it just wasn't good for me in my thinking. And as God's developed me in some of this, this ability to be alone, I, I'm much better now at being on my own. And not for too long. I get on my own too long. I go crazy. It's weird. I get weird ideas and I start living in an alternate reality, right? We all do, I think. So... Enough solitude is good, too much bad, not enough bad, right? So the idea of solitude itself isn't virtuous. It's not a fruit of the spirit, okay? Solitude isn't a fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit, solitude, you know. <laughs> no, it's not. It's something that will lead us maybe to something like kindness. Because in solitude, we can kind of think through some of the things that we have going on in our relationships and realize, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm acting out of my frustration, anger, whatever else. I'm not being very kind, to this person, you know? God, how kind have you been to me, you know? And, and so uh, the idea of spiritual disciplines are they're stepping stones to a lot of these things that are virtuous in Scripture. You don't just wake up one day and be good at forgiving. You just wake up one day and not be an angry person. There are stepping stones to this, and the spiritual disciplines are often those very stepping stones, those things that we do in the interim between those major decisions and major interactions in our life that help prepare us for those things. That's where the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and our minds mostly. These little things, the day-to-day, -day, the mundane, the stuff that we wrote off is not significant. I read to you Cassandra's piece uh, that she uh, wrote on our service deal, and I just love it. It was such a great thought. I read it uh, with the whole vocation and work thing. And I'll say it again because I've kind of memorized it because it's kind of stuck in my mind. It's, it's so good. But it's just the idea that, you know, a lot of us, we think about the big things and big decisions in our lives as being huge spiritual successes. And yet, maybe that's one of the main reasons we don't tend to see the Holy Spirit working. It's because the Holy Spirit works behind the scenes, works in our hearts and our minds, the day-to-day. -day. Knows us better than we know, our, know ourselves and knows God better than we know God and intermixes those two. And maybe that's one of the reasons we don't see the Spirit working a lot. is because we're focused more on the big decisions, from one big decision to the next, and all the mundane stuff in the middle somehow doesn't matter to God. And yet that's the Holy Spirit's fertile ground of work in our hearts and our minds. There's the daily stuff, the small interactions, the small relationships, all the stuff that builds up and leads up to the person we're becoming. And, uh, and so these spiritual disciplines uh, are, are things that really prepare us for these bigger decisions in our lives. And so when the time comes and we make the wrong decision, it's not that, oh, well, next time I'll know. It's, well, up to this point, I really haven't been disciplined in these areas yet. And the same thing's going to repeat itself over and over again until the Spirit disciplines me in these, these ways. And, you know, and the, the New Testament authors talk over and over again about seeing discipline as a, a, a simply an opportunity to see God's hand in our hearts and in our lives. That's it. It's like a father disciplines his kids. 
God disciplines us, and this isn't just spanks us for doing wrong. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about this idea of spiritual disciplines. Disciplines us. And so maybe one of the reasons we don't see God working a lot in and around us is because we're not very disciplined as a people. (laughs) We don't work to make discipline equivalent with the Holy Spirit's working in us. We just kind of live haphazardly. One day to the next, just sort of whatever comes, and if Jesus or God does this, great, we'll be good, but... But it's the day-to-day that God will work in these spiritual disciplines. All right, I've said enough because I'm already losing many of you. Your eyes are starting to wander into the space of sleepiness. Uh, Next slide, okay? So, short history of ideas. Why not put the short history of ideas on one slide? We'll just do it. Who cares? Let's go for it. All right, so the Reformation. We started to move away from this sacramental view of the world during the Reformation. There's a lot of reasons why. We don't have enough time to talk about why we started moving away from these The quickest thing I can tell you is that the things, the sacraments started to become simply a new form of religious ritualism. Okay? Void of any meaning beyond what meanings we gave them through our own human ideas. Which is to say they weren't really focused on Christ anymore. They seemed like they were. But the sacraments really became something that didn't connect us to God. They simply were one more way that we could approach God on our own through doing stuff. You do this, you do that, you go through this process, you go through that path, and then out comes a good Christian. Well, New Testament authors railed against this kind of thinking because the Jews had done the same thing. They had created an entire law that had nothing to do with the original law that was supposed to reveal who God was. And so that's what sacraments had become. And so the Reformation was all about uh, you know, bringing us back to these sola things. Only scripture, only faith. We don't need these sacraments. Well, we kind of like communion and baptism, so we'll kind of put them in there somewhere. <laughs> and, and you still see some of the mainline Protestant churches, and by mainline, I just mean the older what we call liturgical, meaning that they had kind of a planned out service. Episcopalian, for instance, which Episcopals generally accept all of the sacraments. But like Lutheran, Lutherans or Methodists, some of you grew up in these backgrounds that only would accept some of these sacraments, not all of them. And they wouldn't even accept them so much as sacramental as much as they were just important. We want to remind you that communion and baptism are important. Some of the folks who grew up in the Church of Christ, which is a small segment in our history, geez, they went overboard in what they thought about baptism. Baptism was like this somehow incredibly meaningful sacrament that if anybody didn't do it and didn't do it completely right, they'd have to do it over and over and over and over again just to get it right. But what that is is a perversion of our particular sacrament. And a lot of the churches, Protestant churches, have argued over these and whatever else. But the whole idea of the Reformation was to sort of reform this system of sacraments. No more sacraments. No more actions to get to God. All we need is faith and all we need is the Scripture. That's what the Reformation was really about. Alright, so then we had the Enlightenment, and it's arguable how much of the Reformation set the stage for the Enlightenment and how much it didn't. We won't go into that because, why? There's no need. The Enlightenment, rational thought, can free us from the bonds of superstition. Humans are naturally free and capable of amazing things in the world. And so rather than seeing the world as this mysterious place, with all these sacraments and supernatural aspects and God kind of working behind the scenes... We began to think about the world in a way of our own rational minds being capable of so much more than we were capable of before. Uh, So the whole idea of science and scientific pursuit really 
flowed out of this movement of enlightenment. We woke up, the lights turned on. Yay for us. Okay? And we began to focus particularly on scripture or faith, which, yeah, by having mysterious components, sure. But uh, the first debates we started to have was how do we read the scripture? It was ultimately a rational debate. Um, and uh, so whatever, whatever you're going to do with that, go for it. That kind of led to this really long period of time, about 150, 200 years, which some say we're kind of still in, some say we're not, which is modernism. And the idea that we can prove almost everything that's worthwhile in a scientific lab or through a scientific exploration. All right? Skeptical of the supernatural, most of what we know. And we've inherited this, by the way, whether you realize it or not, you've inherited a certain amount of modernism. This is why so many of us, unless we grew up in maybe a Pentecostal background where we were really encouraged to understand the supernatural, have this sort of uh, real critical, skeptical eye to look towards things that are supernatural. It really limits us a lot, I think, in a lot of our ability to understand God working um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and just know this. Uh, the stuff that he does. But we just have this kind of skepticism towards anything supernatural. Now, modernism, some have said, has given way to this really wonderful new thing called postmodernism. Yay, and some of you, that's where you're at, postmodernism. Woohoo, you got a label now. Label. <laughs> Who's ready to tattoo it? Postmodern. Yeah. Back tattoo. No? Okay. Um, and postmodernism is a reaction to modernism. It's basically the idea that we can't prove everything rationally. Because ultimately, scientific exploration is itself some absolute standard. Something that, that everyone's saying is right and has to be right. And what's better is for us to be postmodern, and that is to say, your right is your right, my right is my right. Why are we even arguing? There is no such thing as a meta-narrative, which means a grand story. Everybody just has their own sort of local stories. No one truth is, is the truth. And there's this renewed focus that happened in the Enlightenment on individual thinking. You are an individual. You can do everything you need to do. Your pursuit of God is your pursuit of God and no one else's business. And whatever you find true, do it. Because it's true to you. Obviously, there's good and bad to this. The good is that we're recognizing that a lot of, of stories have been imposed and forced on other people. I mean, you see this with white and black issues in our society. And the idea that white history has largely been the history that's been imposed on people of color in American society. Uh, whether you like that idea or not, doesn't really matter. It's where we got our idea uh, you know, from uh, this whole thinking, this whole idea of a truth that's relative, that's not absolute. And so there's been some great good in understanding local stories and how people perceive the world. And just as much, we've gotten some real bad out of it. Because if your story is ultimately your story and you define morality, then all of a sudden now nothing brings us together. We have no shared values anymore. We have nothing that pulls us together in any kind of collective action. One of the things I think a lot of you guys struggle with, if you're anything like me, is why do you church? What the heck are we doing here? Why come? What's significant about this? I see these people all the time. I talk to them. I hear that guy talk all the time. I could repeat all the stories that he has. Okay. What? Who said, mm-hmm? Who knows how many of you can do impressions of me? I don't care. No, I do care. If you can, please. I want to, I want to see it. Okay? <laughs> so, the idea, though, is that the whole idea of us coming together is, well, like, why? What do we do that for? Why can't I just be spiritual on my own? And, in fact, the vast majority of American Christians don't believe this, guys. Why do you think church attendance is down in all churches, okay, 
Uh, and non-denominationalism is sort of like holding on barely. Pentecostalism is actually increasing some, which is kind of its whole other interesting issue. But most people just aren't going to church anymore. They don't, they, and if they do, it's not a communal thing for them. It's an individual pursuit of a feeling or a new piece of wisdom or some way that I can present myself to someone else as spiritual and get some kind of reward back. And so this is what's happening. So let me mention a two, uh, a two kind of quick things uh, here in the next uh, slide. Um, Oh, you know what? I updated that slide and I didn't even add it to it. Shoot. Let's skip this one. We'll come back to it. So challenges for our present age. Number one, we have an amazing lack of depth in our understanding of spiritual meanings and practices. And I'm not even talking about the sacraments. Forget the sacraments. Most of us didn't even know what sacraments were until we talked today. Except for the few of you who maybe grew up Catholic and you're like, oh, that's what those were. Now I understand. I did like one of them or two of them, but oh, seven. Oh, wow. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> But we have this incredible lack of depth in our understanding. And I'm talking about just the basics of what church is for. And I'm talking about myself too, guys. I'm well studied. But we're starting with this sort of basic understanding that doesn't really pull on or pull from a lot of the traditions that have come before us. It's like, what's church? Why do we do it? What's the Bible? How, how should I treat it? You know, and we have these very simplistic understandings of it. Who's the Holy Spirit and what, what does he do exactly, you know? I kind of know what Jesus does and God, but I don't ever pray to the Holy Spirit. Like, what does he do? So we just have this sort of lack of understanding, basic understanding in a lot of these ideas. And it comes from, more or less, we've pursued God, and this is the second one. We bear a heavy burden of responsibility for our own individual pursuit of God. Many of us are just in it for ourselves. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, it's a selfish thing. It's just we're on our own individual pursuit of God. And that's the extent of it. And no one can really talk into my life or speak into my life or say anything unless I accept it in. I've got to be the one that sort of dictates whether that thing can come in or not. And whether I'll listen to it. You know, wow, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a result of our postmodern mindset of the world which a lot of us haven't ever checked whether or not it's accurate or right or makes any sense. Even though we're in the minority of people who actually believe that nonsense compared to the rest of the folks on planet Earth and the rest of the folks who've ever lived. Because we have this huge, heavy burden for our own individual spirituality. We're just kind of on it on our own. We, we pick up things as we go, piecemeal. We're just sort of wandering. And if you've got this, maybe I'll listen to it. And if you've got that, I'll get that. But for the most part, we're just sort of in it, kind of on our own. And that's the burden we bear in our day and age. Opportunities, though, that come from our present age and the things that are going on, I think, are kind of twofold. The first one, and I think this one's really exciting, uh, if we can get to it. Um, oops, no opportunities? I messed up. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Number one is we get to speak the message to a new audience. Guys, I don't think many of you realize the significance of the postmodern movement. In the same way that the Enlightenment age was a really important age, and the modernist age was an important age, postmodernism, and we're in our kind of beginning stages of it, will be considered an important age in the future. And you guys are at the cutting edge of it, which makes it difficult to grapple with and understand how to really understand uh, what it looks like to, to believe in and follow Jesus when you're in an environment where, where the culture is changing dramatically used to be one thing, and now it's another, and we're kind of caught in between two worlds that often seem like they're opposites of each other. 
How can we both prove things from a scientific perspective, but then ultimately science is just one local story and we all have our own individual stories and doesn't matter whether they're scientific or not. I mean, this is confusing. And that's just one idea, one way of phrasing. But as Paul said in Romans 15, 20, he had always wanted to present the gospel fresh and new to a new audience. He didn't want to build on someone else's foundation. He wanted to lay the foundation of Christ fresh and new and clean. And I think that as a generation for you, and I'm talking about those of you who are millennials or not, doesn't really matter. In this day and age, we don't quite realize how new a lot of our ideas really are. And how we have this amazingly fresh and exciting opportunity to try to pull in our understanding of our Lord into a new age and a new time. That will lay a foundation for people who go after us to really think through a lot of these difficult concepts. And it's why we talk a lot about cultural stuff in here. It's why we have pizza theologies on heaven and hell and, you know, and sexuality. And I don't remember what the next one is. What is it? Hearing from God. Hearing from God. And, you know, because this is one of those ones that I think a lot of people talk about, and his voice seems to be quiet. We're almost in one of those, you know, uh, inter-Testament times where we're not hearing from God much anymore. So this is an opportunity for us. We also have a rich history to draw from. We have so much information at our fingertips for how Christians 2,000 years ago did things. And we have this immense uh, opportunity to really pull from those things that other people have done, which is what this renewed interest in, in spiritual disciplines and sacraments and some of that stuff is, and uh, an ability to understand modern movements and kind of compare those together. And so that presents us, I think, with some really cool opportunities in these ways. So let me move uh, forward a little bit and talk a little bit more about sacraments and disciplines. Uh, you don't have to put the slide up there because uh, we're going to kind of go through this uh, really quickly. Both Jesus and Paul were opposed to religious ritualism in its various forms, okay? And they weren't opposed to rituals uh, because they themselves often participated in them. Paul goes and gets Timothy circumcised even though he didn't need to. Jesus tells people who he heals to go ahead and wash themselves in accordance with the law. I mean, every now and again, Peter and Jesus would kind of test the boundaries of the law. But the majority of the time, they very much lived within its confines. And which is a testimony in and of itself, considering they believed that the law really wasn't near as beneficial as uh, people around them were preaching. But they still were willing to go do it as a result of, it's always better, I've learned, the hard way to critique something that you've chosen to go ahead and do rather than to rebel against it and then critique it in the process of rebelling against it. That just doesn't work for some reason. People aren't near as receptive to it. They want to know that you've actually done it, uh, you know, understand it, participated in it. Uh, and that has implications beyond just what I'm talking about, but for now we'll just leave it at that. So both of them were opposed to ritualism, this rigid sort of religious ritualism. And I think on a number of grounds. Number one is a source of authority. That somehow the sacraments or these laws had any authority on the Christian's life. And that's a strong statement. Because what I'm ultimately saying is that many of these things are sort of optional. And maybe not so much optional as much as the idea that we're forced to do them or that they give us any kind of spiritual advantage over others, the act in and of itself is, is not something that Jesus and Paul would have really believed in. And so constantly in their ministry, 
they were pushing against all of these laws. And on a number of grounds. The first one is that these laws had authority, particularly authority over the Scripture itself or over the Word of God, which we'll talk about in a Scripture here in a, in a moment, Mark 7 and verse 1 to 23. Religious ritualism for the sake of religious ritualism. Uh, certainly they were opposed to. Religious ritualism as a secret path for wisdom and understanding. And the list goes on and on of all the different things that uh, religious ritualism wasn't supposed to accomplish. Uh, And that basically as soon as these folks were gone, we put these religious rituals into action in all of the variety of ways that they weren't supposed to function. Now we have our own today, which might not be as obvious to you, but uh, we'll try to talk through them. So let's go to Mark 7 in uh, 1 through 23. If someone wants to just read that, um, that would be great. Mark 7, 1 through funny story about this. There was a couple, leave it at that, at our Garland Church who really, really hated some smokers. 
that always would smoke outside of our church building. All right? And, I mean, granted, it was inappropriate in some ways because, you know, teaching kids smoking is okay and, um, you know, just the whole, you know, way they were doing it, laughing and, you know, playing around, whatever else. So they would always get annoyed at this, okay? And so at some point they went and put, I don't remember what it was, but a sign on, on the car that those people smoked in front of it just basically said smoking is unspiritual blah 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 whatever else okay this was their way of dealing with it. <laughs> um and then uh to make matters worse the folks that were smoking then put another sign and i can't remember if they put it on this couple's car or just replaced the sign or turned it around and used this scripture it's not what goes in uh man that makes him unclean it's what comes out uh <laughs> Which, both sides were wrong. Let's be really clear about that, okay? Not only were they both misusing this scripture, I mean, but it was pretty comical, let's, let's be honest. This sort of like war of words. It reminds me of a lot of my wars with my roommates when I would passively, aggressively leave notes about them cleaning things up and doing better uh, rather than dealing with them. And I see a lot of you looking around like, yeah, I got a roommate like that. Well, my confession time, I was like that. Or text, right? Very mean text. Uh, I now usually have to let my wife look at my, my group text uh, just to make sure that they're okay to send um, because I have a tendency to be very passively aggressive or maybe just really aggressively uh, sending these. Go back and read this passage this week and spend some time thinking about your own sacraments. In our day and age where we all individually are pursuing God kind of on our own and with our own different ideas of what's sacred, we have our own sacred rituals. Now, for some of you, they're the more collective ones like prayer and church attendance. But for some of you, you have your own rituals that you may not think of as rituals. The idea of meeting with someone one-on-one. Studying the Bible with someone. We have these sacraments, these, these religious things that make us feel connected to God and in and of themselves, so long as all they do is help us understand who God is and really, you know, uh, help us receive his work, they're great. But rituals are very dangerous because they can very quickly become a source of spiritual pride. We do this. You don't do this. We're real Christians. I've done this six times this week. I'm doing pretty good at my rituals. And we lose all opportunity to really experience God and the Holy Spirit working in us. And we get our reward right there, as Jesus would say. There's your reward. Oh, you got a moment of feeling good about yourself. That was definitely better than getting a sense of God's presence. We have our own rituals. A lot of us, we have different ones. I do my quiet time every morning. I sing beautiful songs to God while I'm walking in nature. We all love to be impressed with our rituals. That's what rituals do if we're not careful. If they're not ultimately about God, our rituals just for us communicate to us a sense of spiritual pride. They become our authority. So much so that they can do what what they've done for this specific group of Pharisees and actually nullify the word of God. They become for them a word unto themselves. By themselves. Who needs God anymore when you've got these rituals that make you feel like you're spiritual? 
who needs to talk to God, communicate with Him, struggle through, trying to figure out what His will is, when all I can do is run down the street, engage in my ritual, and walk away feeling pretty secure in my faith. Again, nothing wrong with rituals. As people, we are ritualistic. Whether you think about that or know it or understand it, it doesn't matter. We don't talk about it a lot in our culture because we think we're over it. Yeah, right. We're ritualistic. And our understanding of what's sacred. For some of us, it's music. Shoot, for some of us, it's alcohol or sex or whatever else. They're ritualistic things in our life that helps us connect to something sacred. Shopping, video games, lost in movies, whatever it is. And I wouldn't even say all of those... Well, no, I'm not going to talk into the sacred aspects of alcohol. Uh, We'll leave that for Rick Watts when he comes back. Because that's pretty much what he did at winter camp last, uh, last time. Um, but anyway, go back and read this passage. Because if your rituals aren't ultimately changing you to be more like Christ, they aren't ultimately symbolic of the God that you serve in His presence in your life, they're meaningless. They're just one more human tradition, human avenue for you to feel good on your own apart from God. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. So you guys come up with all of these really tricky ways of making yourselves feel good and you've nullified the Word of God. You've completely missed how to deal with anything in your life that needs to be dealt with by just scratching on the surface. And he's going to ultimately fight against this idea over and over and over and over again. And it's actually one of the major themes of both Jesus and Paul's ministry. Is learning how to dig beneath the surface of ritualism and surface level appearance. And really grow deeply in our spirituality. Where our heart begins to change. The desires, the things that we desire change. The ways that we behave change. Our affections, our thoughts begin to actually change. Not just get dressed up for others. And so we gotta we gotta let go. We've gotta figure out where are those human traditions, uh, you know, uh, in, impacting how we act and interact with people. Colossians two one through thirty three. Will someone read that one? Colossians two one through thirty three. This is Paul talking about virtually the same thing. Colossians two one through thirty three. Christ, all the fullness 
of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness of Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual we are, We're running out of time. I was planning on speaking 30 minutes and I spoke for 45. So, um... The thing I'll say about the scripture is that when you think about sacraments and spiritual disciplines, the idea is that we're doing things positively that affirm our understanding of who God is. It isn't a list of a bunch of no's. Uh, Christians, I think, love no's. Uh, they love to say no to things. Not because they've thought through their impact or God... Uh, you know, his character, but rather because, again, it's another quick way of ritualizing behavior. Saying, we don't do that, so that makes us better or good, without a real understanding or explanation. I mean, certainly the Bible has no commands. Has no, air quotes, commands. Yeah, okay. Not, it doesn't have any commands. It does have some commands. I got caught up there, stuck for a moment. But one of the things that really helps, I think, as, as we grow in our faith is that we grow beyond this stage of don't do, don't do, don't do. And it becomes a long list of different things we get the privilege and opportunity of doing. And that's where disciplines come in, and I think where particularly sacraments come into our life. Uh, where we start to kind of think back through. And what's more important than, than even that is the idea that Christ is the interpretive lens by which we view all these things. Uh, too often, our behavioral and moral rules simply come to us from our background in our society. What's good? What's bad? Not really spent some time thinking about 
to a Christian, are these things worthwhile, beneficial? Do they ultimately communicate to someone else God's glory, who Jesus is, and is it okay for us to do these things knowing those? But instead, we tend to think this is good, this is bad. And we stop there without really going beyond that. Uh, and Christ is in the interpretive lens of these things. And I really don't have time to spend on that, so I'm just going to kind of ignore it, actually, uh, and move on. So, uh, my last slide uh, before we end, and then the praise team, uh, or actually I guess we'll do a communion. Uh, so in regard to the disciplines, I, I very much think of the sacraments and the disciplines as, as pretty similar. And what I mean is that uh, we're basically trying to ritualize uh, behavior that really disciplines us to understand who God is in a certain way. Um, and to try to kind of recognize that he has for us enjoyment in our life. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Communion, right? Communion has become such a like... I mean, at our church, we've kind of resurrected it a little bit because we have good-tasting bread. <laughs> and that might sound weird, but, I mean, I grew up in a church where it was like a cup of juice... And a cracker, and the most annoying thing was I had to spit out my gum. I'm like, this gum tastes better. Like, I don't want to do that. And so you put your gum underneath, and then maybe you forget about it, and someone else will touch your gum, and they'd be mad at you. Um, but there says something about our God that he instituted one of the most significant reminders of himself as a community meal. Where people have substance, substance food, people are together. Meals are fun, they're great, we do this all the time, and yet somehow we've like relegated this weird ritual to like something we kind of do on Sundays, not as something that's a part of our mealtimes. And I'm not suggesting we make it a part of our mealtimes. I don't even know how that would work. Some of us, were just like, it's so weird how we have to have like a blood type juice, right? Like it's not okay for us to have like a clear juice, okay? But the last time I checked, blood was made up with some clear stuff too, right? I know it because I go and get plasma sometimes. And, okay, sorry, bad example. Um, we've gotten really weird in our strict uh, observance of, of some of these things. But it says something, that God did a meal for us, for our enjoyment. A meal. That's pretty exciting. And we get to go swimming when we, you know, make our commitment to God. Right? <laughs> Hello? This stuff's pretty great. Uh, and I think there's some meaning behind it just beyond this sort of spiritual ritualism and significance, uh, you know, that, that we have. I mean, yeah, it's great. If you prefer to think about it as a shower, I guess you could too. But I don't really like showering, so um, I like swimming better. Uh, okay, so that's the whole idea of these, uh, these disciplines. Um, <laughs> did I really not have a one, two, three, and four when I sent you this? <laughs> oh, I love it, man. My brain, you know? This is what happens with me. So, um, you choose a kind of a, uh, some kind of discipline, and I'll, I'll put these up on the, uh, the Facebook page. Those of you who took the class over the summer, you probably haven't thought about this since. Um, but now is the time to rethink about it. You choose something, particularly at your weekend, and we, I, we've kind of listed some spiritual disciplines. Uh, and... Uh, and then there's kind of four things that I'll, that I'll talk about as um, I'll, I'll kind of put on the, the website. The first thing is that you actually uh, think about well, what's an example or story of this in the scripture. Uh, an example of either someone really failing at this spiritual discipline. So let's say I take calmness, which has been my spiritual discipline for about five months. And I have done pretty terribly at it uh, for the majority of that five months. 
And, uh, and I find an example of, uh, in the scripture of someone who either as a result of not being calm uh, really kind of made a big mistake or, uh, and patience, calmness, I think they kind of go together. Um, someone who really successfully kind of portrayed that. Uh, like for me, it was Joseph uh, originally and, uh, and him being able to be calm despite that he was, you know, not justified in the kind of punishment he got for that decade-long enslavement. Um, and you find a story and you just sort of meditate on it and you kind of think about it and you really try to figure out, well, what does this say about this spiritual discipline? Um, and then you try to look for ways that you can really practically apply this discipline in the next week. Uh, for me, words really helped me. And so I needed to go, like, look up the definition of calm. Uh, and then um, I have this kind of mental image, which I'm not going to share because it's, like, kind of my totem. Uh, you're the only one that got that reference. Yeah, that's good. Man, I'm awesome. Uh, but uh, that, that was helpful for me to kind of have, like, an, uh, in my mind, a sort of something that I could kind of picture and reflect on and meditate on and spend a certain amount of time thinking about that uh, throughout my week. And then I think the second thing is to try to really review and think through how does this discipline uh, prepare me uh, for some of the major dif- difficulties and decisions you know, I have in life? Uh, I have a tendency when presented with a perfect storm of annoyances and inconveniences to just blow up and make absolutely terrible decisions. And a lot of that ref- comes back to my inability to be calm in situations. I just the, sort of like a building of uh, anxiety and I just sort of blow up. And, uh, you know, that's my own deal. And, and you know, so there's some anger that's kind of based in that and whatever else. But it's to think through, so, uh, you know, in this discipline, what does this really communicate to me about who God is? And, 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 uh, and how is it going to, pre- you know, kind of prepare me uh, for these major life decisions and difficulties? And then one of the things that I do, and it's kind of become really kind of a consistent part of my quiet time uh, each week, is I <laughs> voice my frustrations with this discipline. Uh, to God and to other people. It gives me a great thing to kind of just talk through with other people. And it gives me a really great starting point in humility to ask God, like, why am I still, this is me. Uh, and, you know, are you aware of this? And uh, are you, you going to change this? You know, it's overnight, hopefully, that didn't work. So maybe in five more months, you know, that'll work. I'll post these kind of up there. But I really encourage you to think through some of these uh, this more proactive method of spiritual growth that's about kind of looking at the rituals, spiritual rituals that you already have and analyzing those for how effective and how Christ-centered they really are. And if not, being able to replace those with things that are really spiritual disciplines that are focused on, uh, you know, that are Christ-centered and that you can kind of ritualize in your life. Because I think that's really important and I think those can be very helpful. I know this is a really like new way of kind of thinking about some things. And so we'll probably talk about this some more, and I'll definitely post on, uh, on the, uh, the Facebook page now that I've gone way, way, way over. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week, and you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.